Brought along uh, my cowboy boots with me today. Pretty spanking pair, don't you reckon? Uh, well, I thought so anyway. Uh, a friend... That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> Tough crowd tonight. Uh, a friend of mine got them from Durango in America a long time ago, and I really liked them back then. Uh, I even wore them under my suit on my wedding day. That's how much I liked them. Back in the day... Now you laugh. Now you laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day, a lot of musicians sort of knocked about in cowboy boots. It was a bit of a rock and roll thing, and that was my thing. But recently I've been watching a show that I think has been streaming for a while called Yellowstone, and it's about a family of modern cowboys who own a big ranch in Montana. Here they all are looking brooding and smouldering and other things like that. But they live in Montana on the edge of the Yellowstone National Park, which is just breathtaking country. It's magnificent. But the show is a salient reminder, to me at least, of the pitfalls of wanting too much. I've worked out, the show is really about the destructive lengths that people will go to to take this ranch off the family and the equally destructive lengths the family will go to 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 hold it, to keep it. And it's actually got to the point where I've I've got to stop watching it. That narrative arc is just so dark and quite disturbing. There's no redeeming features in it. There's, There's no light. It's all just about problems and hassle. And the wealth is not worth it. They don't seem to be able to enjoy it. They have to fight so hard to hold on to it. And they carry on as though they have this kind of inalienable right to the land anyway, that this beautiful country, this magnificent scenery, is the product of their own hard work and nothing else. Of course, being Montana, there is the recurring theme that the Native Americans own the land anyway. But the truth is... It all belongs to God, doesn't it? Isn't it true that all we have belongs to God? And I suspect none of us here own vast swathes of country, but we're not spared the dangers of wealth for that reason. We're not immune from the pitfalls of desiring it, and we're not exempt from the commands and encouragements that the Apostle Paul gave to young Timothy in 1 Timothy that Paul has just read for us. Can it be true that all we have belongs to God? Is it right that he wants something more or better for us than just money? And if it all comes from God, even if we've worked hard for it, and I imagine we have, what does that mean for our use of it? They are just some of the questions that we're covering today as we head into the back end of our series that we've called The Truth Is. And we're just tracking seven vital biblical gospel truths and heeding the response that each of those truths compel. So far we've seen that the gospel itself is demanding. The good news about Jesus is demanding. But God himself is gloriously good. We've seen that people are lost without him. But that being one of his people, the church, means being part of a spiritual family with all the blessings and privileges and responsibilities and, frankly, weirdness that families involve. But today, what might it mean for us if all that we have belongs to God? Well, the first thing it means, and you can see that from verse 6, is that godliness with contentment is great gain. You and I naturally think stockpiles of money and the possessions and the opportunities that that buys us, that that is great gain. You can see in verse 5, just before the reading started, that the false teachers in Timothy's day thought that godliness, or at least a false form of it, was a shortcut to financial gain. But nah, says the Apostle Paul, it is godliness with contentment that is great gain. And so, friends, from the beginning, There is a beautiful aspiration, godliness with contentment. And if you have ever seen a content person, you would have to admit they are a wonderful person to be around. 
So we'll need to talk about how to get to that point, but first we need to define godliness with contentment and then discuss some of the threats to it. So godliness is to live a life that increasingly resembles Jesus in all its forms, moral purity, kindness and gentleness, boldness and courage, love and mercy and compassion, and to those wonderful virtues the Apostle Paul adds contentment, godliness with contentment. You increasingly resemble the likeness of Jesus as you remain happy with what he has given you, particularly as that concerns material possessions. Now, we live in an age in which people own more material possessions, more objects than at any other point in human history thus far, such that the person who has everything is not your crazy rich uncle or that kind of unattainable A-list celebrity, It's probably just about all of us. And we're going to face the grim reality of that as we trudge our way through Westfield at Chatswood trying to find a present for him or her and we'll be muttering to ourselves, what do we get them? They have almost everything. And yet the Apostle Paul says in verse 8, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. What a striking statement. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Because I don't know about you, but I find myself wanting to add things to that list. Not silly things like Porsches and Audis and Ford Rangers that drive over the top of Teslas. I mean modest things. Like just a cute little cottage to see out my days. I don't need a mansion. Very modest additions. And yet the Apostle Paul says food and clothing is enough. Now what that tells me is that it's very safe to say we will find the ideal of godliness with contentment difficult to attain. And so the threats and the warnings that attach to that are worth us heeding. Well, what are they? Firstly, you can see there uh, in verse 7, just the fact of our own mortality means the desire to get rich is a foolish one. It's foolish. You brought nothing into this world, says verse 7. You're going to take nothing out of it. I guarantee you. These days, people say things like, well, you can't take it with you all the time, and usually that's just an invitation for them to spare, to rip through their kids' inheritance, you know, doing lap after lap in Winnebago's, right, before they die. But previously, uh, when people said you can't take it with you, what they meant is, you know, it's got no enduring value, so it's foolish to spend your whole life accumulating it. You can't take it with you, says Paul, so be wary of the desire of getting too much of it godliness with contentment is great gain but the desire to get rich is not only foolish if you have that kind of eternal perspective it is also highly dangerous and though not many of us would consider ourselves to be wealthy if you look very carefully here you'll note that this warning applies not to those who are wealthy i mean he's going to talk to those folks later it's actually for those who want to get wealthy So it seems to me that none of us here can escape that. There is something in this passage for all of us, something for everyone. And I want us to note the seriousness of the warnings from verse 9. Let's read it together. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, just track that with me. A person will first fall into temptation. There will be a lure. Then they fall into a trap. 
and then eventually into many foolish and harmful desires, wandering off and piercing themselves with many griefs. Isn't that a vivid image? You know, in the Vietnam War, the Viet Cong would set traps known as pudgy sticks. They looked like this, which was a set of simple uh, sharpened bamboo or wooden spikes, uh, very sharp and sort of jammed into camouflaged holes and placed in areas likely to be passed by enemy troops. Now, you don't need to have a lot of imagination to understand the damage that might be done to a soldier who fell into a hidden hole that had a series of sharpened spikes angled up or, alternatively, the damage they'd bring upon themselves getting out of that sort of a trap. Now, subconsciously, we think if we get rich, we'll fall into a hammock in Tahiti. The Apostle Paul says you're much more likely to fall into something like that. You might even lose your salvation if that were possible. Mark Twain, he once joked that it's the lack of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. And uh, if you've ever been poor, you'll know that it's not romantic, it's not noble, it's stressful, it's embarrassing, it's humiliating. But wanting to get rich is no joke either. It's a dangerous occupation that might even threaten our faith. And so we should take it seriously, friends, godly with contentment. To be able to say, I have enough, is great gain. Well, in verses 11 to 16, the Apostle Paul counters, and he says to Timothy, his young Padawan, flee from greed. I want you to pursue I want you to chase righteousness. That's another way of describing godliness with contentment. Those are the things he is to be eager for. But from verse 17, the Apostle Paul has a series of commands for those who are rich in this present world. He's already addressed those of us, which I think is all of us, who want to get rich in some measure. Now he turns to those of us who are already rich. But here's the thing. I reckon that question of who is rich is a very slippery one, don't you reckon? Like, when do you cross over the line from being not rich to being rich? I might think I'm just getting by with just enough, but what I call just enough is likely to be staggering lavishness to most of the world. You know, there is a story about a young Bangladeshi woman. She visits a Christian family in Toronto, in Canada, and she looked outside the kitchen window one morning And she pointed at the garage and she said, and who lives in that house? And the Canadian mother said, oh, that, no one lives there. That's a house for the car. And for the rest of the morning, she was heard muttering throughout the house, "Uh, a house for the car, a house for the car. If you don't think a house for a car is staggeringly lavish, and I don't, it probably means that we are among those who are rich in this present world, regardless of how we might feel subjectively at any point in time. So we're the group that Paul addresses in verses 17 to 19. What are we to do? Firstly, and I think very interestingly, he addresses our hearts before he gets to the wallets. Right? Do not be arrogant and put your hope in wealth. Being rich in this present world, it's got a power to puff us up, doesn't it? to be proud, to be arrogant, to think we've made it on our own strength and ingenuity. 
And all of us could point to rich people who we know. We go, that, that, they're exactly like that. Of course, we want to be careful that that doesn't also apply to us. And I'm sure it's true that you're smart and you have probably worked very hard for what you've got sure. But I would say, well, who gave you the body and the brains to work that hard? Was it you? I mean, who, who placed you in a country where enterprise was rewarded? Was that you? Because I reckon people who work in sweatshops work pretty hard too, don't they? Who placed you in a family where education was valued? It could just be the case that we bring a lot less to the table than we automatically assume that we do. So that warning to not be arrogant is a salient one, a signal one for us. And further, the apostle warns us to be wary because wealth is uncertain, isn't it? It could just so easily slip through our fingers, you know. One bad investment, one bad decision, one bad natural event, one bad day on the stock market, one unforeseen or unprincipled competitor, one slight cultural change, and it could all go. So be wary, don't put your hope in wealth. I reckon this uh, initial instruction, verse 17, is interesting, not just because he addresses our hearts before our bank balances, but also because he doesn't say that wealth is wrong. Did you notice that? He could have easily said that. You filthy rich pigs. What are you doing? He could have said that. But he doesn't. He says, don't take pride in it. Don't put your hope in your wealth. It could all go in quite easily. And so the following instruction is just the positive side of the first one, isn't it? Put your hope in God. He is the one who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It really is the truth that everything we have belongs to him. But in his generosity, he's given us everything for our enjoyment. So instead of the Apostle Paul saying, you filthy rich pigs... He just says, like, it's not wrong to be wealthy and it's not wrong to enjoy it. God is not a miserly killjoy. He's a generous provider. And friends, I think this is very helpful for us because if we're going to live in Northbridge or any neighbouring suburb, we will need to have a certain level of wealth. Okay, if it was wrong to be rich, none of us could live here. None of us could live near here. It's going to be very difficult to reach Northbridge and nearby if we don't live close by, if we don't have a gospel presence here. So in a way, it's good for Northbridge that God has richly provided for our enjoyment. But of course, that is not all he has to say about wealth, that God has generously given it to us for our enjoyment. Otherwise, we would be safely within biblical instruction to live lavishly and selfishly. So instead, the Apostle Paul continues by commanding the wealthy to be rich in good deeds, which means even if you're wealthy, and you give a chunk to church and to charity, that doesn't buy your way out of loving service to others. You can't pay to be not involved. You want to be rich in good deeds. But also part of the point of being wealthy is that it enables you to be generous and willing to share. And that's the last command he gives to those who are rich in this present world. And this is where I'd like to start grounding all that we've been thinking about today in practical difference. So we've been given this rather delightful aspirational ideal, godliness with contentment, great gain. And we've been encouraged why that's wise. We've been warned about the dangers, wanting to get rich and even 
been instructed about what to do once we become rich. Don't put your hope in money, put your hope in God. Be rich in good deeds and sweaty service and share your coin. After all, it all belongs to God. But friends, what response does that actually compel from us? Well, it seems to me that it's very hard to get around the idea that the best way to move towards that delightful ideal of godliness with contentment, the best way to combat the dangers of desiring to be rich, the best way to put your hope in God rather than money, and of course the most obvious way to share is quite simply to be generous with your money. If the truth is that all we have belongs to God, if he's the one who richly provides everything for our enjoyment, then there's just a, there's a basic logic to generosity. But it's not difficult to understand, is it? It's just difficult to do. So what might generous look like in your life? You know, in the Old Testament, their start point was to give a tenth, what they called a tithe of their crops and income for the service of the Lord, I think 10% is a very good start point in your thinking and decision-making. And if you are young, this applies to you as well. You're never too young to start being generous. It doesn't get easier as you get older. So get into good habits while you're young, I would recommend. But the New Testament, as we've just seen, it promotes generosity. So it may be the case that you should give more than 10%. You don't have to give all of that money to St. Mark's. But ask yourself this question, if I don't, who will? If I'm a Christian and a member of this church, who will? This is my family of believers. It's no one else's responsibility to meet its needs. And my short experience in this church is that it is a good steward of God's money. It doesn't waste it. The budgets are tight. There are no extravagances. It adheres to strict processes around budget and receiving and spending money wisely. Spending is overseen by the parish council and the treasurer, David, who is a legend. He, it's reported upon regularly. Most of our costs are related to staff who work very hard. Without question, friends, they are working wholeheartedly for Jesus and a Northbridge who knows him. You can be confident in them. I am supremely confident in them. I would pick them on my team any day of the week and at least twice or three times on a Sunday, which is lucky, isn't it? Furthermore, 10%, uh, at least 10% of what we spend is on mission. So you're already giving to mission, even if you just give to St. Mark's, even if you don't give to mission anywhere else, which I know many of you do. So there are lots of good reasons to give to your own church. And uh, if I share this graph that I shared with you during the last financial update that comes from the National Church Life Survey uh, from a few years ago, you'll see that almost four in five of us give something to our church, which, of course... Uh, in the red, means that one in five of us don't. Now, I can't insist that you do that from the Bible, and I wouldn't insist on it anyway. But if the people of St. Mark's don't give to St. Mark's, who else will? Of course you can give to other places, and I would encourage you to do that as well, both to mission and to contributing to the needs of poorer folks. I would encourage you to do that. Perhaps I can share with you how we, how we do stuff in our family. And now is probably the time of year we need to revisit our arrangements, especially as our church continues to be behind in our general giving and as we look ahead to 2024. I really don't want to say goodbye to a mission partner or a staff member because of money. And I don't think it should fall upon one or two of our big donors to always make up the slack. We will have plenty if we all play our part.
So maybe it's time that you gave it some thought or you had that conversation in your household. Well, we give around 10% of our income to St Mark's. I'm very, very happy to do that. If you look at the graph, only one in five of us, that's sort of the the light blue square there at the left-hand side, only one in five of us do that. I would be very happy if that increased. Uh, I mentioned in the last finance update that for the past few years, our congregation's average giving roughly equals a tithe of what you'd get if you were on unemployment benefits. So if you're picking up JobSeeker and you gave a tenth of that, that roughly equals what our congregation's average giving is. Now, I just think that means there's room for us to grow in our giving. I suspect that there are a few folks doing some heavy lifting, which means some other folks are able to develop generosity, and I think that would be good for your sake as well as for the church's sake. In our family, we also support a sponsored child. I'm very happy to do that. And I um, stupidly just sort of made this pledge in my head that whenever um, World Vision asked for more money for a special appeal, I would give some. And I think somehow they worked that out. So in all honesty, not every time that I see their calls coming through from Melbourne do I actually pick up the phone. Uh, But then we also feel free to give away little bits here and there as the opportunity arises. And I think that allows us to support the needs of my own, our own spiritual community. It allows us to provide something for the needs of poorer folks. It allows us the freedom to give to other causes and missions and people that we like. And it doesn't seem that we're being ridiculously generous. I mean, I've got friends and they have pledged to give away one extra percentage point of their income every year. So, like, I hope they don't live too long. And there are, there are even people who reverse tithe. Um, I mean, I don't think many of us can do that, but there are some people that can do that, and they live off 10% of their income and they give the rest away. You know, there's just lots of creative ways to slice and dice this distinctively Christian habit of practising generosity. Well, friends, can I say a couple of things before we finish up? First one is this. You never regret being generous. You never, ever regret being generous. You just don't. That is my absolute lived experience from when I was 18 years of age and above. But the joy always follows the act of obedience. And it's like that in lots of the Christian life, isn't it? If you wait for the joy to come first before you pray or you give or you obey, you're probably not going to pray or give or obey because the joy follows. But let me say, the joy follows. If you give, you will experience joy. It is good for your soul. And that joy is just one of the ways that God blesses his people when they're generous. Secondly, it has long been known that giving can have positive effects on the person who is giving, an increase in happiness, in confidence, and even physical health. But in uh, research from Indiana University in 2020, they found that more attractive people are more likely to be givers and givers are rated as more attractive. Now, I'm not saying it's a dating strategy any more than it's an investment strategy, but boy, are you good-looking people, hey? So good-looking. To, uh, to finish up, friends, um, let me say, I'm, I'm really grateful for the generosity of this church. I really am. Underpinning all that is the fact that generosity shows you understand how generous God has been to you, doesn't it? in creating you, in loving you, in knowing you, in forgiving you, 
in dragging you back into relationship with him through the life, death and resurrection of his son. And you'd have thought, as grateful recipients of all that, it would be so simple for us to grow in our generosity, but it's hard, isn't it? Every time we see something we really like, or we see that others have got more than us, or those Tuesdays when the RBA raises interest rates again, or or we, we just cannot find a petrol station where it's dipped below $2 a litre, we tell ourselves, and our culture reinforces it in hundreds of little ways, you probably don't have enough. You ought to be more careful. You should probably keep it for a rainy day, man. I, I can see them clouds coming. And yet if the truth is that wealth is uncertain, if the truth is that greed is folly or that greed is more dangerous than punji sticks, if the truth is that God provides everything we need for our enjoyment, if the truth is that it all comes from God and belongs to him, then we can afford to grow in our generosity, you seriously good-looking, generous people. Let's pray, hey? Soften our hearts, Heavenly Father. We don't feel like we're rich. And yet in so many ways we are. Help us not to trust in our wealth, which is so uncertain. Help us not to be arrogant because of it. Help us to be rich in good deeds. Help us to be generous and willing to share. For you richly provide everything for our enjoyment and it all belongs to you. So move us, we pray in Jesus' name, to be people who practice godliness with contentment. Amen.